Well, as we uh, announced, we're going to walk through the book of Leviticus. Now, some of you might be excited, and some of you who might be excited might only be excited to see what in the world is Lucas going to say from the book of Leviticus after not just one sermon but a series. Others of you might be very skeptical that we get much out of a book like Leviticus. You remember last time you tried reading through the Bible. Leviticus is where you got stuck. Uh, Genesis had a lot of stories. Exodus had some lost stuff, but it still had this, this overarching narrative you can track with it. And then Leviticus is a lot of codes, a lot of regulations, and things that we don't quite understand or grasp. It's very different. It's very foreign. It's a different culture. We don't know why certain things were important. And this is not new. Uh, these books and portions of the Bible is, have always given people a difficult time. I think of uh, one account where I was reading uh, that Gandhi tried reading the Bible. He committed to reading the whole Bible. And he said he got a couple books into the Bible, and the only reason why he kept reading was because he committed to it. He's Gandhi, right? That's the only reason why he got through it. He said he really disliked large portions of especially the Old Testament. He especially disliked the book of Numbers. I guarantee you he didn't like Leviticus very much more than he liked the book of Numbers. One of my favorite commentators I was reading this morning, I read his introduction, not this morning, I was reading this week. Yeah, I did all my homework this morning. I was reading this week, and he, he said he almost stopped writing the commentary because Leviticus was, is so heavy and difficult, and it weighed on him that he wasn't sure if he can get through it, not because he doesn't like it, but because of its, of its weight. And so even if you do feel like you can understand the details and get through the details and the minutia of the regulations, it, it can be weighty. And so we're going to introduce the book today. My, my hope today is that just by getting an introduction to it, we can appreciate it so that we can start diving into it one piece at a time. But we, I just want to lay lay the table, prep the table right now so we can enjoy the meal in the upcoming week. So if you need a Bible, please lift your hand up. We'll bring one to you. Uh, it's not hard to find the book of Leviticus because it's third up in the book, in, in the lineup, in the Bible. Lots of weird stuff happening in the book of Leviticus, um, especially if you've not been around uh, studying the Bible very much, but there's all kinds of different offerings and you're not sure why does there have to be a burnt offering and then a grain offering? Why are there so many different kinds of offerings? And why are there so many different rules for priests? And if I'm not a priest, why am I reading this? Um, you're not sure why uh, crickets are okay to eat and lizards are not okay to eat. And the text doesn't tell you. It tells you how to identify them. It tells you how many joints to count to tell you whether an insect is uh, edible but then it goes through a long list of things that actually you might find obvious. Don't eat a mouse. Don't eat a chameleon. You know, but it's, it, it's real estate of God's holy inspired scripture is taken up by verses like don't eat a gecko. I mean, what do you do with that? If you pause there for your daily devotional, 
what, what, how, how do you live in response to a verse that tells you it's okay to eat grasshoppers? It tells you don't shave your beards. It tells you don't get tattoos. And what, what do you do with that stuff? And those laws are right next to other laws that we'd say, well, of course they're applicable. Love your neighbor. Rules that provide guidelines for sexuality. And so over the years, people have been a little confused as to how to categorize these things. Here's one, one of the categories that has um, been pretty popular. It's to divide the laws of the Old Testament into three groups. Civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Okay, civil laws, how the group, the nation, should act as a nation. And then, uh, what did I say? The civil laws as a nation. Ceremonial laws is... The priestly stuff, the garments, uh, the, the tent, the tabernacles, and all those regulations. And then, of course, the moral laws, which would be like, love your neighbor and don't kill him, <laughs> things like that. And those three distinctions usually are used to say, okay, the moral laws, they carry over. Obviously, you shouldn't kill people and you should be faithful to your wife, but you, know, you don't have to worry about your garments, you don't have to worry about tattoos, don't worry about cutting your beard or shaving it or whatever. Um, don't worry about those because those are ceremonial or those are civil but those don't really work first of all the bible doesn't really lay out the laws in those three groups and then sometimes it's really hard to tell which one's civil is it civil to murder somebody well no well is that moral well where is it civil and where is it moral and so it's hard to discern which laws fit into which category and then you have verses in the new testament like second timothy 3 16 and 17 right all scriptures god breathed and profitable so somehow that verse about not eating geckos is profitable to you. It's profitable to you. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, not just for the original readers, but to New Testament readers, is Paul's point in that chapter. So we need to figure out what to do with it. We don't want to divide them in such a way that we only take the ones that we think still apply today. And then you need to figure out how to respond to those who tell you, I don't listen to the laws about sexuality because you don't listen to the laws about beards and tattoos, geckos and crickets. They'll tell you, you cherry pick scripture. You only want to use the verses from Leviticus that tell me how to live my life, but you don't want to use the other verses in Leviticus that tell you how to live your life too. What do you do with that? How do you pick and choose? Are we picking and choosing? What's happening? So we see these laws are supposed to be relevant. Our problem is we're not sure how they're relevant. So I want to look at just the first verse, not even necessarily the whole first verse, just to kind of orient us to how we should even approach the book of Leviticus to try to get through some of the confusion. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 1. And not only does it follow the book of Exodus um, canonically in the order of how the books are in the Bible, but it follows it chronologically as well. The book of Exodus, that's happened, and now this is um, in light of that, given to us in light of that. Here's how it starts. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The book of Leviticus is about 
how God is going to relate to these people from this tent. And you remember from the book of Exodus, the tent, the tabernacle was how God was setting up his dwelling place. In Genesis, they were with God in the garden. They sinned. He kicks them out of the garden to communicate, you cannot be in my sacred presence. You cannot be in my holy space. But now in Exodus, he says, I'm going to come up in your space. I'm the missionary God. I take the initiative and I establish a relationship with you even though you're outcast from me. That's the tent. The tent is God's mission to establish a relationship with his people that are not relatable. And so the book of Leviticus picks up on that idea of the tent where God establishes himself. And it's God telling Moses, I am here I am here to dwell with a people that are not able to have me. And so for this relationship to work, there are going to have to be some regulations. I'm not just going to hang out in this tent while y'all do whatever you want. The relationship has some guidelines to it. There are parameters to this relationship for me to give you the privilege of me being in this tent among you, for me to tabernacle among you. This relationship needs to be regulated, and therefore the whole rest of the book of Leviticus is regulations. So the context is God establishing his relationship with his people. The first word in the Hebrew of the book, the first word is called, or God called out, And so, it's this calling that the book is about. God calls Moses and explains regulation. So he's calling his people to live a regulated life. He's calling his people to live according to rules, to be rule keepers. Because you cannot just think whatever feels good to you in the moment is okay with God. Not necessarily. And so regulation is needed. For God to dwell among his people. So if we go to the book of Leviticus for quick tips on how to live an energized life. Yeah, Leviticus is going to be boring. If you come to the book of Leviticus going, let me see the book of Leviticus asking what is there that's relevant to you. You've already inverted the very purpose of Leviticus. The very purpose of Leviticus is get you to live a God-centered life, not a you-centered life. And so if you come to the book asking, let me see what's relevant here for me, you've got it backwards. You should approach the book of Leviticus going, how am I relevant to God? That's different. It doesn't mean that you don't matter. It doesn't mean that you're not important. Of course you're important to God's plan. He wouldn't be tabernacling among his people if he didn't think the relationship was important to him. But it's important to him. He is the center of the relationship We're not the center of the relationship. So if I read a verse about shaving beards or I read a verse about how wide or long the tabernacle should be back in Exodus and I see that is irrelevant, that's my problem, not God's problem. I don't see how it's relevant because all I care about is what's in front of me right now, what's on my calendar, my meetings tomorrow. And if Leviticus doesn't fit that, then I kind of leave Leviticus on the shelf. So for Leviticus to be important to me, I've got to go, what does God want to communicate to me? Whether I immediately see it as irrelevant or not, what does God want to communicate to me and does it have an abiding relevance? Yes, it does. But I need to come to Leviticus on its terms, on God's terms, not on my terms. And so let's not disfavor a book of the Bible 
because we don't see how fast we can squeeze relevant juice out of it. Some books ask you to linger. Some books ask you to sit down for a minute before you get this truth. As a parent, there are some things that you can be driving in the street and you've got music playing and you can communicate to your kid and there's some things you've got to pull over, stop the car, and look them in the face to give to them. And that's the book of Leviticus. Yeah, it takes homework. It takes time. It takes some grappling with the text. Good. Why is it important? Because God is calling you to something. That's why it's important. He is the center So Leviticus is telling us through the revealing of God's laws, because God is saying, I'm here, here's how you live if you're going to live in my shadow. If you're going to live as my neighbor, I'm tabernacling among you. If you're going to have a relationship with me, then here's how you should live. The implication is this is what I'm like, and so therefore you should be like this. So it's really a window into what God is like. What is he like? What is he not like? What does he hate? What does he love? What will he not tolerate? What makes him clap? Yes. What makes him go, no, stop that? (laughs) Rules. Rules show that. If I were to walk into your house and say, what are the top ten rules in this house? Or if somebody were to ask your kids, what are the, the top five rules right off the top of your head that mom and dad say over and over again? They're either the rules that most reflect what mom and dad emphasize or the rules that most reflect what you refuse to obey, therefore it needs repeating. But it's one of the two. Rules reflect the rule maker's attitudes, thoughts, things that he favors, and rules reflect the misalignment that we have, right? the corrections that we constantly need because if those weren't there, we would veer off. If we didn't have a misalignment on those things, the rules wouldn't be necessary. So it reflects what God wants, what he desires, what he does not want, what he does not favor, which is also a reflection on what we tend to not want. It reveals that God is a certain kind of God. And it gives us a little more insight into why in the book of Exodus in chapter 20 we are told God's people are commanded to not fashion an image that is supposedly going to represent God, which is a different commandment than don't worship another God. The first commandment is don't worship another God. The second commandment is don't worship any God, including me, in the form of an image. I'm not a calf. I'm not a frog. I'm not a pole. I'm not a flag. Don't try to illustrate me. Don't try to dumb me down into a picture and make me into what you want me to look like. I am. No adjectives suffice. And so what we get from Leviticus is he's shaping our minds what God looks like. Since we're not allowed to shape him into what we want him to look like, God is giving us the shape. And he's giving us the shape through his rules and his regulations, telling us what he's like. And what we see is that God is not sort of on a whim coming up with these things, that he's very serious about these things, and that we serve a fiery, fierce God. We serve a God that is serious about holiness 
And he is set apart. That's what holy means. He's set apart. He's unique. He's different. He's not like us. He's not mundane. He's very much other. And so we can't just relate to him like he is. I'm sure Jesus was very relatable in many ways, but when we have t-shirts with his teeth gleaming and thumbs up and he's doing a skateboard, you know, for me, that goes a little bit beyond the comfort level because Jesus is the exact representation of this fiery, fierce God. And when you open up the book of Revelation, Jesus is the one exacting the wrath on God's enemies. And he's not riding a skateboard. He's riding a horse with a sword, and he's cutting people down. It is fierce. It's fiery. It's wrathful. And so there's the first step and not making God into our own image or the image that we want God to be, but letting God be who he is and let us figure out how we're supposed to relate to this fiery, fierce God. Thankfully, you don't have to wait to get into the New Testament to discover other attributes about God that at first might seem contradictory, but they're not. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He is a patient, long-suffering God. How do we know that? The fact that he's even tenting among them. The fact that he knows he's, they're going to break these rules and he's still explaining the rules. He sets up a priesthood that would ultimately fail until Jesus. But he does it because he wants to establish this relationship. He's the initiator. We didn't beg him into it. If God didn't take the first step, there would be no steps. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God plucked Abraham out of nowhere. And so from the very beginning... One of the things we see revealed about God is the order in which the relationship is established. God establishes the relationship first, then he gives us the responsibilities. God establishes his rescue first, then he makes clear the requirements. Not the other way around. Not here's what's required of you, and then I'll see if I'll rescue you out of Egypt. He rescues them out of Egypt, then gives them the law. Calls Abraham, and then tells Abraham where he's going to go. He doesn't even tell Abraham where he's going yet. You're going to follow me. Okay, I'm following you. Great, here are the rules. That's always been the pattern. And so grace precedes obedience. Obedience does not give you grace. Are there a lot of clear New Testament verses on that? Yeah, don't have to wait to get there for it because that's the book of Leviticus. If you read the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Leviticus 1-1, you've got to go almost 70 chapters before you get a code of law. That's Exodus 20. What do you have all the way up to Exodus 20? A big narrative of God establishing his relationship with the people that have abandoned him. So grace is established first, then there's rules. We often think, well, in the Old Testament, it was rules in order to earn God. No, it wasn't. The rules were in place for people who were already in relationship with God. So rule-keeping was never about earning a relationship with God. Rule-keeping was always a result of it, and that's true today. As we walk through the book of Leviticus, you go, wow, we're going over a lot of rules and holiness, and are we, are we being legalistic? No, legalism is going around grace. But grace that doesn't produce obedience, that's cheap grace, and it doesn't exist. That's not God's grace. God's grace frees you up to start living for Him when you couldn't before. So are we about rule-keeping? Yes. If there's a book in the Bible that's all about rules that God establishes, should we be interested? 
Yeah. Especially if you've been rescued by grace. Because now they're especially relevant to you. I like how one author put it, Christopher Wright, who said that when you read through the Old Testament, you discover that worship is primarily a response to God, not a negotiation. So as we read through the book of Leviticus, we'll see this as a theme, this call to holiness. God is like something. He's a certain way, and so therefore, it has implications for the way we should be. So one of the theme verses will be Leviticus 19.2. You can turn there. Leviticus 19, verse 2, which should sound familiar to you. And of course, we'll get to this passage in due course. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So there it is. There's the pattern. I'm a certain way, so you should be a certain way. You need to live a certain way. Why? Because I'm that certain way. God is not making up rules to make things difficult for you. God's rules are a reflection of what he's like, and if you're going to be in a relationship with him, you've got to conform to him. He's not going to conform to us. And So therefore, the rules are relevant because we're imaging him. We're becoming little mirrors of him. We're supposed to reflect what he's like. That was why we were created in the beginning, was to be created in his image. We couldn't be that image, so Jesus had to come and be that exact image for us. But he invites us into this relationship, and we are little by little made into mirrors where the gunk is chipped away and the glass is polished to more and more reflect what God is like, not what I want him to be like. So why should we be concerned with holiness? Because God is holy. He is holy. And His holiness demands our holiness. God's holiness requires our holiness. And so what is our response to God? Our response to God is conformity. Our response to God is obedience. Our response to Leviticus is God-centeredness. Our response to God is worship. And we do that together. You'll notice as we go through Leviticus, it's communal worship. It's together worship. None of this Lone Ranger stuff. We're in this together. We approach Him together. That doesn't mean you don't have an individual identity in Christ. It means that that individual identity should not be siphoned off from the gathering. What is the focus of that gathering? The focus is God's holiness and our conformity to Him. God's laws are given to us because He loves us. He wants a relationship with us. For the relationship to work, we need to live a certain way, so He gives rules. So He gives laws. Why do you give rules to your kids? Hopefully most of you, is not because your parents gave you rules, you resented it, and pay back to your parents is to throw it on your kids. No. You want them to cross the street a certain way. You want them to do certain things at an age where they're able to do those things and not get hurt, mentally, physically, or emotionally. And as kids, it might take us a while to recognize why those rules are important. But we recognize if God is a father and he's loving, of course there has to be rules. If there weren't any rules, that would be unloving. 
I'm going to dwell with you, but if you get it wrong, then I can't dwell with you. The relationship's broken. Well, how do we get it right? Well, figure it out. You know, no, he's not a passive-aggressive God. He's not, you know, like crossing his arms, hoping that you guess what's wrong with him. No, he wants you to know. Here's, it, here's what it is. Here's what I want. Here's what is required. And so he puts laws in place to insulate us and protect us from waywardness and corruption. So if God establishes laws that reveal to us what he is like so that we can live like him, how can it possibly be irrelevant to us? That makes Leviticus very relevant. It's going to be hard work, the lizard verses. I know it. But we know it's relevant. We know why it's important. And so we dig underneath. And we do our best. We may not be able to figure out every single answer to every question. Why the cricket and not another insect? Why the lizard and not something else? But, but we, can, we can understand the principle that underlies what he's getting at in those verses. And so God gives us grace so that we can obey. He doesn't give us grace so that we can forget about obedience. We want to obey. We want to live holy lives. And the last thing we'll hit on is how this book projects toward Christ. If you read this book like, All right, okay, I'm going to live holy life. I'm going to live a holy life. <laughs> it's not going to last. Probably won't even finish getting through the book of Leviticus. We cannot bear the weight of the law because we can't do it on our own. It is only by our virtue, by virtue of our union with Christ that we can respond to it. And so Christ has to be the context here. I'll remind you of a few verses. We won't turn to them except for the last one and then we'll close. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul refers to the law as a guardian. The law, he tells the Galatians, has served as a guardian. Now, when you think guardian, you might think someone standing in a gate with a weapon, a shield, a soldier. You might think something along those lines, but that's not really what Paul means by guardian. What he means by guardian is more like um, if a parent isn't around and someone wants to know who's this kid's guardian. That's what he means. It's more like a teacher or a tutor, someone that teaches the child the ABCs and how to walk, how to tie their shoes. They're not supposed to be around forever. Eventually, that child is supposed to know how to walk and know how to tie shoes and know how to read and put sentences together and know how to go apply for a job and all these different things that an adult should know how to do. The guardian should eventually be able to move on or it has served its purpose. And that's exactly Paul's point in Galatians 3. The law was like a tutor. Hey, you don't know what God is like? I know your hearts are so messed up, you can't even think what God is like. The things that you think are right aren't even right. The things that you think are right are wrong. You're pretty backwards. You're pretty messed up. Um, aside from changing your heart, what can we do? We can build scaffolding around you just to kind of control your mess. You know? And as we move you along, you're starting to learn, oh, God likes this. Oh, he doesn't like that. Why so many details? This lizard, that lizard, this lizard. You can't just say, eat good. Because a messed up heart doesn't know what good is. And so you have to say, shave like this and keep your skin clean and wash yourself and these kind of things. And so we get into the nitty gritty details of Leviticus. It's because hearts weren't able to conform. And so God had to reveal it in great detail so that they can say, okay, here's the scaffolding that keeps me. Here's the guardian that walks me through. But Paul is saying in Galatians 3.24, 
We don't need the guardian anymore because we have Christ. Now, he's not saying the law is irrelevant. He's saying now in Christ we see what the guardian was getting us to. Maturity in Christ. So to try to understand Leviticus outside of its point, outside of its where it's trying to get us to, we'll lose the meaning. So along the way as we look at Leviticus, of course, we'll be using Jesus Christ as the context. Matthew 5.17 is another important verse because Jesus didn't say, I came to uh, you know, make you completely forget about the law, but I came to fulfill it. He didn't say, I came to abolish it, but fulfill it. And fulfilling it is different than abolishing it. That was junk. <laughs> Obviously, that system didn't work. That was dumb. I don't know why the Father even tried that stupid system. But this is uh, relationship 2.0, right? This is the upgrade to your system. Forget the other system. This is totally new. Uh, no. He's saying all that the law was pointing to, I'm it. All that the law was preparing you for, here I am. All that you couldn't do under the law, I'm doing. All that the law was trying to get you to do, I'm fulfilling it. I'm accomplishing it. Right? That is different than saying, the law, forget it. Take the first half of your Bible and chuck it. You know? No. Not at all. Romans 10.4, we were here recently. Paul tells his readers in Rome that Christ is the goal of the law. He's the end of the law. He's the ultimate purpose of the law. So, of course, in Galatians 3, Paul doesn't mean, forget the law. It was a needless guardian. No, it was a very necessary guardian, a tutor, a teacher, your babysitter, to get you to that point where you're all grown up now. You know Christ. Here's a verse I want you to turn to. We won't have it on the screens. If you could turn to it, Romans 12. We'll end here. Romans chapter 12. To many of you, verses you've seen before, the first two verses, as I thought about this, actually pretty late in the game, I thought, I think this is Leviticus. This is exactly Leviticus. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You can take those two verses and put it right at the top of Leviticus, so you, when you read through the Bible in a year, or you decide to be brave and do your devotionals in Leviticus for a while, if that verse is at the top, it's going to put it in context for you. Okay, what is happening here? Here's what's happening. Paul, in Romans 12 to the end of the book, is going to tell the church how to live. And the reason why he waited until chapter 12 to start telling them how to live is because the first 11 chapters of Romans is explaining the gospel setup. We're sinful. God has wrath. What does he do about it? The gospel is what he does about it. And that's how a relationship is established. It's by God's mercy. So here's the transition verse. Now I'm going to appeal to you to live holy lives in response to the first 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters made clear how you are in a relationship with God by his mercies, 12.1. So therefore, he's looking back. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. And now he's telling you what to do in light of who God is and what he's done. 
What is your response? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Boy, we're going to see a lot of that in Leviticus. We're so far removed from it. Have you ever taken an animal and slit its throat? Because if you didn't, you'd lose your relationship status with God. That little animal staring up at you, it's all cute, and you've got to slay it. We're so far removed from that, we're like, oh, communion. It's dirty, and it's an innocent life that has to be taken for no other reason except that we're jerks. And Paul is using that imagery to say, you're the living sacrifice now. Live in light of the sacrifice that God has done for you in Jesus Christ and live holy lives because of it. Your bodies are a living sacrifice now, not a dead sacrifice on an altar, but you get to live your sacrifice. And it's holy and acceptable to God, right? That is the orientation of your life. Not what's fun, not what's easy. What is holy and acceptable to God? That's rule number one. And that's your spiritual worship. See, that's your worship. That's what Leviticus is about, is worship. Then you get verse 2, what we just talked about, the conformity piece. Do not be conformed to this world. That world is going to suck you into its own pattern. Don't. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do I get transformed by the renewal of my mind, and why do I do that? So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to live a holy life, how do I live it? You discern what he wants, what is acceptable to him, what he sees as perfect. When he goes, yes, that's perfect, do that. The world may say, no, 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 this is perfect. Don't listen to that nonsense. Do what God okays. Do what God approves. Do what God wants. We can only do that in view of his mercy. If you don't know Jesus in here, This is not the altar call moment. I'm not going to have to have you come up here and and sign a card. If you don't know Jesus, you can't do it. You're not trying to live a living sacrifice in view of God's mercies. You're trying to live a living sacrifice in view of your ability to do it. But it's not there, so therefore you can't. But if you know Christ, you've confessed Christ, then you understand the mercies that have got you to this point. And this point is not a time to check out. This point is not a time to be lazy. This point is not a time to sleep the rest of your relationship with Christ away while you bump around day to day doing whatever you do. Now it's time to get to work. Now it's time to live holy lives. And as we move through the book of Leviticus, it's going to make you uncomfortable at points because it's calling you to holiness and we don't like holiness We like to protect our little things that we want to do, and we don't want God to expose it or call it into light. The things that we do that displease him, he wants you to stop doing those. And you might think you're mitigating the damage damage by keeping it private. You are not going to mitigate damage by keeping it private because it's damaging you. God takes sin Seriously, you're going to read through Leviticus and go, oh, God is really harsh. Yeah, (laughs) it's harsh because he's holy. So we want to take that seriously and go, God, help me understand. If it's not eating lizards and cutting my beard, then what? help me understand how I don't see unholiness sometimes and how you need to reveal it to me and then give me the heart to follow through when I see it. Is this unpleasing to you? Give me what I need to stop doing that. 
Is this what's pleasing to you? I'm so tired. <laughs> I don't feel like I have the energy to do that. Would you give me the energy to do that? By your mercy that is available to me in Jesus Christ, would you give me the energy to do that? I want to be a living sacrifice. So my prayer is that this ancient book, Leviticus, will move us along in that direction. Conformity to Christ, renewal of our minds to discern what is pleasing and acceptable to God. All right, let's pray.